Before we dive into the Rise Up series, there's something I've been wanting to say now for, for a couple weeks, knowing that this is coming. And um, being a youth pastor is an absolutely amazing journey, and it's such a blessing to be a minister and to these families and to these students and to see these, these kids embrace relationship with the Lord and to grow. But the honest truth is simply this, that I cannot do this alone. So before I take any further step this morning, I want to acknowledge every REACH youth leader that serves in our ministry. And church, I want you to know that it's these amazing leaders that are the ones that are leading the small groups, that are playing the games, that are praying over the students, that are riding the buses, that are riding the roller coasters, that are staying up all night, that are leading Bible studies. Our amazing leaders even give up their own personal vacation time just so they can chaperone trips and be there for our students. They sacrifice a lot of their time, they sacrifice their talents, and they come every week to be a blessing to them. And to all of my youth leaders, I tell you, I can't do this without you. Reach would not exist without you. So thank you from the very bottom of my heart. And most of all, I would have to say, and she's, she's going to kill me for this, but my, my awesome wife, Chris Ann. And I know that there's a... I think there's a, a picture of the family somewhere. I think we have it. There they are. There's my people. And uh, <laughs> they're good looking, aren't they? I don't know how that happened, but that's, there they are. But Chrisanne, she does so much of the administration work for our youth ministry. She's the one who's doing the scheduling. She's planning out the trips. She's, you know, locating the hotel. She's helping me think of sermon ideas. And all the while, she's being the most amazing mother I've ever seen. And I wouldn't be here without you, so... Thank you very much, and I love you, sweetheart. All right, enough of that. <sighs> All right. <laughs> it's a great privilege to be here. It really is to, to, to be able to come up and, and contribute to the Rise Up series. As Pastor Pete has said, um, last year was, was our year of health, and we were moving our church towards becoming healthy. And as we went through that year, he then felt that the Lord put it on his heart that this would be the year that our church rises up and that we become the family of God that, 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 that he intends us to be and that we would rise up and use our gifts and talents in order to see the kingdom advance in Charlottesville. And then he also said this line. He said, very rarely in life do you or I ever rise up without a person or an event calling us to do so. And this is something that I really enjoyed because, to me, that perfectly describes why I love youth ministry so much. And I would have to believe that it's why our leaders are here as well, because it's true. Every day, every month, it seems, we get to watch these students grow up in front of our very eyes. Our leaders are here because they can see the tangible evidence of the Lord working on somebody's life. They're not here because of my amazing leadership skills, which I think they are. And they're not here because I feed them all the time, although we do eat very well in youth ministry, as you can tell. But I believe that they are here because they can see the evidence of God working in their life. As students grow and they grow fast, we can see the Lord working in them. 
through our weekly services, through our in-depths, our Bible studies, monthly activities where students can come together and, and, and make friendships that last for a lifetime through camps and conventions and weekend trips to the beach and going to all these conferences, we go to the places where we see our students challenged and stretched in their faith and we get to watch them respond and when they do, we see God tangibly change their life and it's absolutely amazing. We get to cheer them on in their faith and we get to see them grow, and we get to see them take this adventure with Jesus. And i got to be honest with you, as a youth pastor, sometimes it seems like these moments are going to last forever, and then all of a sudden, January of their last semester of high school hits, and you go, oh my goodness, I only have five months left with these kids that I've watched growing up right in front of my eyes. I realize that it's not equivalent to what parents feel, but nevertheless, it still hurts. But I have to believe that if we do what we have set out to do in youth ministry, if we have obeyed the Lord and if we have helped to be a resource to parents and help these kids find a relationship with Christ, it's all right. Because I know that when they leave, they're leaving as lifelong followers of Christ. You see, our name reach simply means, well, the definition of reach, the, of reach, the um, easy definition, would be reach means to stretch or extend as to touch or meet, to succeed in making contact with. Our very name implies that we, we teach our students that they have to have a faith that is not idle, a faith that, not is, is, that is not their parents, or faith that's not their youth pastors or youth leaders, or faith that they can't get from the church, uh, but rather it is a faith that they own, that they possess, and that they cultivate themselves. That's the purpose of our youth ministry to build lifelong followers of Christ. And in, to me, we find our success in this in three ways. We ask our students on a routine basis to do three things, and it's reach up, reach in, and reach out. To reach up means to have a deep and personal committed relationship with Jesus Christ, that God in his grace has moved heaven and earth in order to know us and to make himself known to us. So we ask our students to, to reach out and to make contact with this loving God who wants nothing more than to know you and you to know him. According to 2 Corinthians 3.17, we are being changed from glory to glory and transformed into the likeness of Christ. So we challenge our students to take this journey and watch the Lord transform you into the very image of himself. Then we ask our students to reach in. We realize that Jesus has given us the blessing of the church and that we do not stand alone in this world. So come to reach, cultivate some friendships, and learn the faces of people who are chasing Jesus right next to you. Lastly, we ask our students to reach out. This world is full of teenagers who are lost, who are hurting, who are broken, and they're seeking something greater. And that you, even as a teenager, have the light of the world inside of you, and you can make disciples of Christ in the hallways of your school. And you can even lead your families to Christ. We've seen this at REACH. We not only ask our students to reach out in their, in their own lives and right here in Charlottesville, but we always challenge them to go out into the world and take mission trips. As Zach was talking about, Zach, my man, Zach Hodge, he came to Nicaragua with us. It was his first ever mission trip. I think it was the first time he ever ate fish too, but it was amazing watching this young man come on a mission trip to a foreign country. He's never been out of the country before, and then he goes in, and it was like, it was like watching. It was weird because he's, he's so excited, but he has no idea what he's doing. But then as the week progressed, as we did the Bible studies together, as we hung out together, he started to feel more comfortable. And it was like, and I had a moment with him and said, Zach, man, we're here just to love these kids because we were there building a school. And I said, Zach, we're just here to love these kids. And he goes, okay, 
and like 10 minutes later, he's out in the middle of a field playing soccer with hundreds of kids. And you can just see the Lord just using him to be a blessing. Zach is one of the three high school seniors that are going to be coming with us to Alaska this year. Yeah, we're taking a trip to Alaska. It's going to be awesome. We're looking forward to it. It's a place called Big Lake. It's beautiful. And in 2018, uh, this part of Alaska suffered a devastating earthquake, and they're still rebuilding from it. So we're heading up there to help the rebuild and also just to share the love of Christ. Now, I know what you're thinking. Isn't Alaska dangerous? And the answer is no. No, it's not dangerous. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. Where we're going is right by Anchorage. It's this beautiful, pristine town. I'm going to show you a picture of the town real fast. I think there it is right there. That's Mount McKinley. This is actually a trip we're going to take. We're going to raft this river on our free day. But we're going to a beautiful place that our students are going to be, uh, have the opportunity to share the love of Christ, to do work, and to reach into people's lives and share Jesus with them. And we believe that as we ask these students to make these three points a daily and weekly aspect of their lives, that they will go from little tiny sixth graders that look like this and this and this. So all the way back in K-Tech and this. <laughs> that they, Pablo's my man, that when they come into this youth ministry and, they, and they're these little tiny sixth graders, that when they finally stand up on this stage, when they are leaving this youth ministry and when they're coming out from their homes and they're stepping out into the larger world, they are doing so knowing who Jesus is and they are committed to following him at all costs, never to let him go. So this morning as we dive into the sermon series, Rise Up, I want to challenge us as a church, but also challenge our graduates more specifically, that as we rise up, we will also speak up. Our text is coming out of Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, we know that Jesus was a master teacher. We know that he was a master communicator. He would use the examples of the world around him. He would draw on the imagery of what's there. And it's not just important as what Jesus said, but when you get into the context of where Jesus said the things that he said, and when you dive into it, it brings the text to life. This text is so rich in imagery that I wanted to share it with you this morning. And it's going to sound a little weird at the beginning, but trust me, we're, we're going to land this plane and, you're gonna, and it's going to all come together. But Jesus was making a shift in his ministry at this point in his ministry he was, he, was, he was going around, he was, he was healing, he was preaching, and this is the shift that he is now going to stop telling the disciples in parables that the Son of Man is going to give his life, but he starts openly telling the disciples, I am going to the cross. And so Jesus is beginning his last mission trip before he makes his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. And he, he does most of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee, but in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of a stunning turn, Jesus takes a 25-mile trek north, and he leads the disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is a place that is known for, for pagan activity. It's a hot spot for pagan activity. Caesarea Philippi is at the base of Mount Hermon, a very naturally beautiful mountain that is snow-capped most of the year, and out of this mountain flows many natural springs, there's natural grottos, natural caves. It is a very beautiful, beautiful place. 
And because of that, because water is just bubbling up from the ground, the ancients set it up as a place to worship gods. Why is that? Because in the ancient world, especially to the Greeks and Romans, they believed caves and especially bodies of water were entranceways into the underworld. They believed that the physical world and the spiritual world were, could literally touch each other, and in a way they were both physical, and that these waterways, when you dove down into them, you could find yourself in the underworlds, or as it would be called, Hades. They believed that they were the gateway to Hades. So the ancient people would build up these spots. They would build temples and shrines, and they would set up idols to the various gods. Now in Caesarea Philippi, there was one god that was dominant there, and he was the Greek god Pan. And this spot is significant because in Caesarea Philippi, where Pan is worshipped, there is this spot right there where there's this massive opening in the side of the mountain. I believe we have a picture of it. I want to show it to you real fast. This is an aerial shot of Caesarea Philippi as it exists today. Now, in Jesus' day, right next to that big hole right there, there would be a temple sitting in front of it. Then there is a shrine right there, and you see this little cutout in the, in, the, in the rock right next to the big hole. All of that is filled with niches where they would put shrines to all the different pagan gods, and people would worship on that floor. When the Romans came in and took over, that big spot right there to the immediate right is where the Temple of Zeus went. And then they had over here to the far right the, dancing, the floor of the dancing goats, because Pan was that half-goat, half-man god. The really weird-looking thing with like the goat legs and the horns, and he had the flute. All that stuff. That was him. But the thing is this. Pan was one of the gods that the ancients believed. He would spend six months in Hades, and then he would spend six months in our world. And it coincided with spring and summer. So in the wintertime, when Pan was believed to be underground, nothing was growing. The flocks weren't growing. Everything was dead. Everything was stagnant. And then in, and, and when the spring would begin to come around, the ancient people would gather at this site and they would begin to worship Pan and they would offer sacrifices. And in the big hole that you saw on the side of the cave, there was a giant pool of water that went straight down into the cave and created this massive abyss that you could not see the bottom of. So as the ancient people believed that this was a gateway to the abyss, they would make their sacrifices and they would throw these things into the hole in hopes that Pan would be coaxed out of the underworld, come up into the real world, and bless the flocks, bless the herds, bless the ground so that people could live. Now Caesarea Philippi was a hotspot of pagan activity because they would not only offer sacrifices there, but they would practice some of the most profane and grotesque things that you can ever imagine. And I will not mention those this morning. It's pretty awful. But these people would go here and they would worship and they would have the festival of Pan and they would pray and they would worship and they would do what they do in order to get their God to come out of hiding so that they could live. This was a hotspot of pagan activity. It was a place where first century Jews wouldn't be caught dead in, but Jesus was leading his disciples straight for it. It was here that he had the conversation in Matthew chapter 16, which we will take our verses. It says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? 
Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, did you catch that? The gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he told his disciples not to tell anyone who he was. This was the gate to hell. Jesus marched his disciples right there in order to share an illustration about the culture that they lived in, about the lost people that were surrounding them, and he stood in front of the gates of hell and he said, when my church rises up, hell cannot stop it. In the face of wicked idolatry, Jesus asked these questions. Who do the people say I am? Number one. And they responded. And this was kind of like a popcorn response. It just kind of went back and forth. Well, Jesus, they say that you're a good teacher. They say that you're a prophet. They say that you're a miracle worker. But what they don't say is that you are the son of God. You are the Messiah. They stop short of saying what Jesus actually is. You're good. You're someone we'd like to have around. But that's about it. Jesus was face to face with the culture of the world that surrounded him, as were the disciples, and the reply was, you're a prophet. I find it very interesting that not much has changed about the belief in Jesus in 2,000 years. In our world today, Jesus is still a moral teacher. He's still a good leader. He's a healer. He's a secular humanist, but he is not God, nor can he possibly be the only way to God. To say that Jesus is the only way is offensive. How can he possibly be? The problem is, Jesus said of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. It was offensive to them then, it's offensive today. But it is something that every person will have to wrestle with at some point in their life. Who is Jesus? They had to wrestle with it then and there. But then Jesus flips the question on the disciples and he says, you, and in the Greek, this is very emphatic. He says, you, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he hits it out of the park. Now, this was not the normal Peter moment where he sticks his foot in his mouth and Jesus has to rein him in and say, you know what, Peter, just sit down for a second. You know, that's coming here in a second, but this was a moment where Peter actually gets it right. Peter is standing there, and the response that he gives goes off like a lightning bolt inside of his head. I believe that Peter was looking at the landscape around him. He was seeing people worship false gods. He was, people sell, he was, he was seeing people sell away their lives in the hope of something that might not even happen. Peter looked at the culture in front of him, and then he heard the father like a lightning bolt ring his bell and say, and, Peter, and so Peter responds, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. The emphasis was mine there. But, G, but Peter was looking at this world. He was looking at what people were doing, and then he realized, standing right next to me, in complete human form, is Emmanuel, God with us. And in, in this scenario, in Mark's gospel, Peter actually says that you have the words of eternal life. Where am I going to go? 
So Peter looks at his choices. He looks at people worshiping gods. He looks at the gates of hell. He looks at the power of hell. And he says, what is that going to get you? And he sees Jesus standing next to him. And the father rings his bell and says, you know what? You're the guy. You're the one. Peter makes this confession. And Jesus looks at him and says, you know what? That's right. And it's upon this confession that I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell cannot stand against it. It's an interesting thing, the mythology that goes into what is Hades or Hades or however you want to say it. But Hades was the place where dead people went. Not good people, not bad people, but all people. Every person in the ancient world, what they believed is when you passed, you went into Hades. And if you were lucky enough to have a family who had enough coinage, when you passed, they would put coins on your eyes or coins in your mouth. And when you showed up at the River Styx, are we remembering high school mythology here a little bit? When you showed up at the River Styx, you paid the boatman, and the boatman would ferry you across that river that's right there. And then you would approach the gates of hell, and there was this giant three-headed dog with snakes coming out of it, all right, this really weird thing. And he would watch you you enter in and the doors would close behind you where you would meet three different deities and they would decide whether or not you were a good man or a bad man. And if you were a good man, you got to go this way in in Hades to Elysium and enjoy a paradise. And if you were a bad man, you got to go this way and go to a place called Tartarus where you had your own little private torture device waiting for you. But the thing is this, it was all the same place. They were together. In fact, Hades is nothing more than a giant grave. And when you enter these gates, and the other interesting part about this, and and this makes me appreciate the imagery that Jesus used so much more, but when you research just a little bit, when the gates of Hades would open and they closed behind you, you realize that the gates were turned in. See, the gates are a defensive mechanism. They're meant to keep people out. It's meant to protect us. It's meant to watch over us. But in Greek and Roman mythology, which the disciples and Jesus would have known very well at this time, the gates of Hades were not to keep people out, but it was to keep you from escaping. That giant, big, three-headed dog, snaky thing, he wasn't there to usher you in. He was there to make sure you couldn't go anywhere else. Hades was not only a grave, It was a prison where people spent eternity. And Jesus tells us, right in front of this prison, that when the church rises up on the cornerstone that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, when the church proclaims this, when we speak this, and when we come into contact with the culture that surrounds us, and we will come into contact with the culture around us, that Hades will not prevail, the church will overcome, nothing can stop it, and dare I say, the church will snatch people from the grave. Matthew 16, 21 is the moment Peter sticks his foot in his mouth. See, it's that moment as they're standing there and they begin to move away, Jesus starts talking about his crucifixion. And Peter, who just had the revelation that this is the guy and he's going to be killed, Peter says, no way. That can't happen. This is not going to happen. You're the Messiah. His, his understanding of Messiah needed a little bit of a tune-up. <laughs> but Peter stands in front of Jesus and says, this isn't going to happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but you are mindful of merely human things. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, go. Go on. Go to the back. You messed up. 
Take a time out, because this is going to happen. But my favorite part of this passage is what Jesus talks about in verse 24 through 27. While he's standing there, and he's teaching his disciples, and he's teaching the crowd that was following him from Caesarea Philippi, the towns around there, in true rabbinical fashion, rabbinical fashion, I like to see Jesus as a rabbi because in those days when rabbis taught the disciples, it wasn't huddled in a Starbucks or in a Panera Bread in the corner. And he was like, they did this little Bible study, and Jesus was like, yeah, so I'm the Messiah, you know, and this is, this is going to be really cool, this is going to happen. No, when rabbis would teach people in the ancient world, they would take them right to the downtown mall in front of everybody, and they would start shouting out their beliefs, and they would start shouting out their teachings. So when you read the story and you start creating the image in your head, as Peter has this moment with Jesus and then he sticks his foot in his mouth, Jesus stops the crowd and stops the disciples and he looks over Peter and he looks over the disciples and I personally believe that Jesus is staring at the gates of hell and he's staring at people who are worshiping a God that is false, that does not exist, that is not there. They're giving away their lives to something that is not there. Jesus says, if anyone would be my disciple, let him pick up his cross and follow me me. For what would you trade for your soul? What would you give for your soul? Are you going to give your flocks to expand for your soul? Are you going to give for the harvest for your soul? What will you change for your soul? What is more important than your soul? Just follow me. And to summarize what Jesus says, if you follow me, I'll give you life. A life that is real, a life that is live, a life that is filled with the presence of the living God. And I have to believe in that moment that as hell and heaven came in conflict right there, that as the church spoke up, as Jesus spoke, as Peter made his confession in Christ, I have to believe that maybe, just maybe, somebody who was there to worship a half man, half goat, looked at what he was doing and said, you know what? This never satisfies and I am still as empty today as I was yesterday, and I'm tired. And here is this man, Jesus, and in him I can tell other words of life. And he puts down what he's doing, and he puts down his idols, and he walks away from it, and he turns around and begins following the living God. What was the impact of Peter's confession to Christ? Now, we know that Jesus made this confession about the church, but what did it do to Peter? To make this confession to believe in Christ, what did it do to him? What was the imp what's the impact on our lives when we confess Christ on a regular basis? What would change in our daily life if we were to say that Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is Son of God, He is Lord, He is Savior, He is Friend, He is Comforter, He is Provider? See, when Jesus asked us, who do you say that I am, I believe that is a question that we need to ask ourselves with, frequ with frequency or frequently. Because as it is the cornerstone of the church, I also believe that it is the bedrock on which our life stands. What we believe about Jesus will dictate our daily lives. It will determine what we believe, say, think, how we act. It will determine our attitudes, how we view our self-worth, and where we find our purpose, and where we find our direction. Who do you say that he is? It's amazing. This week I got to hang out with many of our former students. It was weird. I just kept seeing them. They just kept coming around. I got to have lunch with a couple of them. 
And it was so amazing because as you've seen these teenagers grow up, man, you never fully grasp that one year in college completely changes them. And, they're, and I'm sitting at this table and I'm looking at them and I'm going, you guys are completely different. Blew me away. They were all smiles because they all said, this was the best year of our lives, which hurt a little bit, not gonna lie, hurt. It's <laughs> kind of thinking maybe your senior year in high school was, but that's okay, I'll deal with it. So I had to ask them what made it so great. And I said, if you could say anything to our graduating seniors, what would you say? And I expected them to say things like, get involved, enjoy your roommates, go on this trip, go on that trip, join this group, do that group. And here's a good piece of college advice, do your laundry. <laughs> like, don't eat the cafeteria food, unless apparently you go to Virginia Tech because it's out of this world. I am so jealous of that right now. You should see the college I went to. Oh. I was expecting them to share these things, but can I share with you real fast as we begin to wind down this morning, can I share with you what they actually said? One of them said this, time is valuable and you don't have a lot of it in college, but don't be afraid to give it up to God and be with him because he rewards it. You will expand the depth of your relationship with God simply by carving out time to get in his word and to pray. When you do this, he shows up and he takes you to depths of relationship with him that you didn't even know existed. Wow. That blew me away. Another student said this, being raised in a Christian home, I realized my faith was partially my parents, partially my youth leaders, partially my pastor, partially my church. But when I went to college, I realized that it was never really mine. And I realized very quickly that I would have to stand on my own two feet. So I had to go back to the foundation that was built throughout high school, and I had to begin to build on it. I had to begin to come to the Lord and allow him to build on the foundation, was, on the foundation that was there. And we began to do so. I realized that I could stand in college, and no matter what happened, I was going to be just fine. One student actually told us that he took a left turn when he went to college. And he began living a life as far away from the Lord as you could possibly get. But then one faithful night, as the Lord does, as Pastor Pete always says, he is the hound of heaven. Jesus met him, and he woke up. He recommitted his life to Christ, and he sat at that table for two hours and he said, everything that I experienced, everything that I ever wanted, I had. But I'll tell you this, faith is far better and Christ is worth it. Wow. So I asked them about this passage right there while we were eating lunch. We broke out our phones and we opened up to Matthew 16 and we started reading it out loud in the middle of a restaurant. And I was like, this is the happiest day of my life. Like, do you know how hard I had to get them, I had to work to get them to even do that in high school? And now they're going, dude, let's just read it right here. Bam, and they pulled it out, and they're going, yeah, this is what Jesus said. And they're just doing right there in the middle of the restaurant. They're just talking about Jesus open, and I'm looking around, and people are just kind of looking at us, and I'm going, that's right. That's right. These are reach kids. But I said, what does Peter's confession of faith mean to you? And they all responded, it means that we have to speak up 
to confess our faith in Christ on a daily basis because it builds your heart. It helps you to hear the voice of God. And then one of our students, who I'm so proud of, said hearing God's voice is an experience that you will never forget. Then they said that we would abide in the Lord, we would pray continually, and when things got difficult, we would speak up, we would say his name, we would go back to the scriptures, and we would remind ourselves who we are in Christ, and we would remind ourselves who he is. See, if you don't continually confess Christ, and if you don't continually hear his voice, I believe it was R.C. Sproul who said that if you don't constantly hear the voice of God, other voices will begin speaking to you. But they will be the voices of fear, of doubt, of anger, of jealousy, of judgment, voices that speak to your failures and to your shortcomings. But never, ever give those, those voices a place in your spirit. Rather, speak up against them through the knowledge of who Jesus really is. And I believe that as we speak up in our lives and as we speak up as, as a church, when we confess who Jesus really is, we begin to rise. As we conclude this morning, church, will you stand with me? Graduates, Never forget that the most precious gift that you have in this life is relationship with Jesus. He is worth giving all of our life to. As you take this next step in your life, always remember how you answer the question, who do you say that I am? Because it will determine the direction of your life. As you face these new challenges, as you step out, into this first year of school. There's gonna be so many different things vying for your attention, vying for your time, new experiences that you're gonna to have to work through. But always remember, there is nothing sweeter than the presence of God. And there is nothing greater than relationship with Christ. It is the most precious, the most valuable thing that you own. So when you feel this world coming against you, when you feel like the odds are insurmountable or you feel the pressure of daily life just continually building up against you, answer that question. Who do you say I am? And confess that he is the Lord, the Messiah. He is Jesus. Amen, he'll guide you. And as Roman 8 said, he'll work everything out for the good of those who love him. Church, let's confess Christ this morning in our lives and as a body. And when we do, we rise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the richness of the text that you provide. We thank you, Jesus, that what seems so unnatural in your day to walk 12 young men to that place just to share with them who you are to build your church, to set the capstone. Father, we thank you that there is power in your name. We thank you that as we confess you in our lives, you give us direction, hope, purpose. And we thank you 
that not even the gates of hate can stand against us.